0: This week's reading is out of Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. "'Get behind me, Satan,' he said. "'You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, the way of the cross.' Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, "'Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul?' If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Sometimes joy requires suffering.
1: Sometimes joy requires suffering. Two times in my life I have experienced clearly the reality that sometimes great joy only comes after great suffering. The first time I experienced this was in college. In college, I ran the Chicago Marathon. I signed up for the Chicago Marathon initially thinking, how hard could it be? <laughs> uh, I signed up after I ran four miles. That was the longest I'd ever run in my life. And I was like, if I could do that, how hard could it be? <laughs> um I'm here to tell you before the joy of crossing the finish line came 26.2 miles of suffering. Well, the first 12 were fine because I trained up to 12 miles before it. So like the first 12 were fine. Um, But the second half, whew. I'll take the blame, though. I didn't train well. But the joy of crossing that finish line, accomplishing something so amazing, it was worth it. It was worth the pain that came before. It was worth the training, worth the aches, worth the blisters. All worth it when I lifted my hands and ran across that finish line with thousands of people cheering me on. All worth it to come in 29,204th place in the Chicago Marathon. Yeah! Just so you know, there were like forty thousand people that signed up, so I finished before eleven thousand other people. So I don't, I don't want to brag, but I did do that. Um, top three fourths. Um, sometimes joy requires suffering. The second time I experienced this reality was in giving birth. Before you have a baby, you don't know how much it hurts to make one come out. And with my first child, my daughter Esther, in true Katie fashion. I decided to go the natural route without any pain medication because how hard could it be? (laughs) This is a common refrain in my life. (laughs) How hard could it be? Um, Very hard is the answer to that. (laughs) I remember at the height of labor pains feeling like there was no way I could do that. It was the most painful thing I had ever endured. But then they handed Esther to me. and my eyes filled with tears, and I was so happy to meet this little person. Isn't she adorable? She was worth it. Holding her in my arms, seeing her eyes and her nose and her ears, her little fingers, her little toes, it was so worth it. Sometimes the path to joy winds through suffering. That's just the reality of life, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. If you've ever set a big goal like running a marathon or starting a business or working toward an advanced degree, you know before the joy of reaching your goal, there might be some pain involved. Runners lose toenails training for marathons. Starting a business is costly. It is stressful. Studying for a degree takes a lot of time and energy and late nights bent over books. But we do it because that cost is way worth the outcome. The pain is worth the joy. The suffering is worth the glory. And that's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants them to know there's going to be pain, but it's going to be worth it. In Mark chapter 8, just before the verses Daniel read for us, Peter confessed for the first time in Mark's gospel that he believes Jesus to be the Messiah. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' identity is treated like a secret. They call it in biblical scholar world the messianic secret because Jesus doesn't want people in the book of Mark telling people that he's the Messiah. He tells people to keep it to themselves when they say, oh, you're the Messiah. And here in Mark 8, right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the people of Israel, Jesus does the same thing. The verse right before Daniel started reading, Mark 8.30 says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Why? Why does Jesus want them to keep his identity a secret? Why does he keep telling people not to say who he is? Well, these verses that Daniel just read answer that question. See, in the first century, if you uttered the phrase Messiah, the most likely image someone would have in their mind would be of a king a king in the royal line of David who would throw off Roman oppression and establish a new kingdom of Israel that was marked by justice. When people thought about what a Messiah might be like, that is what they pictured. And the reason that Jesus, in the book of Mark, keeps telling people not to spread around that he's the Messiah is because he wants them to understand that his path as Messiah doesn't look like they expect it to. Oh yes, Jesus will reign And in fact, more than just reigning Israel, he will reign over all nations, all tribes, all tongues. He will do so much more than they imagine. But the path to that future doesn't look like they think it will. There will be suffering on the road to glory. And he wants to make sure that the people closest to him, his disciples, understand this. He wants them to be prepared for what is coming. He wants the disciples to understand two truths about his messianic mission. The first truth Jesus wants his disciples to know is that he will suffer for his mission. He will suffer. That's why in Mark 8.31 we read, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has been portrayed primarily as a miracle worker, as a wise teacher. He drives out demons, he heals people, he feeds a large crowd, he hangs out with sinful people. He even raised somebody from the dead. So, so far, so good. All these miraculous signs, all his wisdom and teaching about God's kingdom, all of that points to Yeah, this guy might be the messiah the anointed one of the lord who will come and restore israel If he can raise someone from the dead, what can't he do? He can handle rome So it's not surprising that at this point as jesus disciples are talking With jesus and experiencing life with jesus that they come to the conclusion that he is in fact the messiah It seems to be lining up with their expectations that's why what Jesus said here through them. See, they expected a royal throne, a purified temple, a national victory against Rome. And here Jesus says, yeah, my, my mission is about healing. My mission is about liberation. My mission is about victory, but not the kind you're thinking of. The victory I have in mind comes only by way of suffering, rejection, death. This is the first of three times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus predicts his death. And with this prediction, Jesus is radically reshaping their messianic expectations. Beginning here in these verses, Jesus begins to help his disciples understand that he is the one who they're waiting for. But his mission is not like they expect. His mission will include his suffering and his death. And from this point on in the book of Mark, Jesus begins to help his disciples see as he, uh, as he begins this long journey to the cross. From here on out, in the book of Mark, conflict rises. The stakes get higher. And the violent death Jesus endures is the climax of an increasingly fraught relationship between Jesus and the religious people. Mark, more than any other gospel writer, points to suffering as inevitable on the path to God's kingdom. And from this point on, Jesus will make clear that his path will lead to his suffering and his death. Verse 32 here says that Jesus speaks plainly about this. He doesn't tell a parable. He just tells them straight up, guys, I'm going to die. This is not what the disciples expected. And Peter here is so passionate to support Jesus as the Messiah that he takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Jesus, you have just confirmed that you're the Messiah. That is so exciting. And I'm going to do everything I can to support you so that you can, you know, get to this, this thing you're going after. But Jesus, just in case you didn't know, the Messiah doesn't die. Uh, the Messiah is actually going to conquer Rome, restore Israel's national sovereignty. So Jesus, just here's a tip. Don't tell people you're going to die or they won't follow you. Peter is so concerned about Jesus' mission that he rebukes Jesus. That word is the same word used earlier in Mark, when Jesus rebukes demons. It is a strong conversation they're having. Peter thinks Jesus is making a serious misstep in his messianic journey, and he wants to stop him. And Jesus looks around, and he notices that the other disciples are listening and watching And he needs to, he needs to make sure that they understand that this messianic mission he's on, it's not going to be what they expect. And so he responds to Peter's forceful rebuke, just as forcefully. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You aren't thinking about God's purpose. You're thinking about man's purpose. See, Peter's objection to Jesus' claims that he would die represented the thoughts and expectations of the world, which are so often very different than the plans and purposes of God. Jesus' strong reaction to Peter here echoes what he said to Satan in the passage we studied last week when Satan tempted Jesus. Away from me, Satan. See, when Satan tempted Jesus to worship him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the world, that was the same response Jesus gave. Satan tempted Jesus with a possibility of glory without suffering. And that's what Peter's getting at as well. A way to the glory of God's plan that avoids the pain of the cross. But Jesus knows the cross is central. The cross is an essential piece of the entire reason for his incarnation. Elsewhere in the book of Mark, we see that the cross is where Jesus gives his life as a ransom for many on the cross is where jesus will inaugurate a new covenant between god and humanity on the cross is where jesus will offer himself up as the sacrificial lamb who alone is capable of taking away the sins of the world the cross is essential it is not optional and jesus will not be dissuaded from his journey to the cross it is at the cross not on a throne that Jesus will strike the death blow to the schemes of Satan. The cross is unavoidable. The cross is central. The first thing Jesus wants his disciples to know is that he will suffer on his messianic mission. But there's something else he wants them to know. The second thing Jesus wants his followers to know is that if he will suffer in his mission, so will they. After he corrects Peter, he turns around to those that are near and calls them over. He says, guys, listen up. I need, you to, I need you to get this. This is something you need to understand. This mission that I'm on, it's not like you expected. I'm not here just to seek the throne of Israel. I'm here to restore the entire world. I'm here to seek and save all the lost. And in that pursuit, I will suffer and die. But there's more you need to know. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For Mark, the way he writes his gospel, being a disciple of Jesus means to follow Jesus. When Jesus called the disciples earlier in the gospel of Mark, that's what he asked them to do, follow me. When Peter and Andrew were fishing by the lake, follow me. When Levi was sitting at his tax booth collecting people's taxes, follow me. To be a disciple of Jesus is to follow Jesus, to go the way he goes, to do what he does, to become more and more like him. And here in Mark eight thirty four, Jesus tells them what it will ultimately mean to follow him. It will mean following him all the way to the cross. It's interesting that in the book of Mark, the word cross is only used here and in the events around Jesus' crucifixion. The only time the word cross is used is right here in this verse and when they're talking about and illustrating Jesus literally being on a cross. This is the only time Jesus speaks about a cross. And it's about not his cross, but the cross of his followers. The only time he mentions a cross, he is preparing his followers not only for his death, but for the likelihood of theirs. In fact, all three times in Mark's gospel where Jesus predicts his death, it is immediately followed by Jesus challenging his disciples on their willingness to suffer for the sake of God's kingdom. Jesus wants his followers to know that discipleship is costly See, the cross was a Roman invention. (laughs) It was an instrument of pain, of cruelty. It was meant to dehumanize. It was meant to shame everyone who was killed on one. They were used to punish the most heinous crimes. They were used to punish those who rebelled against Rome. And by the time the book of Mark was written, the emperor Nero had begun to crucify Christians. So for Mark's readers... Taking up the cross was not some theoretical possibility. It was likely. They'd seen it with their own eyes. In Mark, the cross is not only for Jesus at that moment of the redemption of all mankind. In Mark, the cross is also a pattern for discipleship. It's the unavoidable outcome of following Jesus the unavoidable result of following Jesus in what he calls in verse 37, a wicked and adulterous generation. This sounds sobering. This sounds extreme to us. And it is. At the same time, this was the lived reality for the readers of Mark's gospel. By consistently pointing out that violence done to Jesus and the violence done to those around him. Mark is working hard to show his readers that suffering, the suffering they're facing right now, is not a sign of God abandoning them. It's not a sign that they're being punished. It's not a sign that they've done something wrong. Mark wants them to know that their suffering is actually the sign of their faithful identification. With Jesus. Their suffering is normal. Their suffering is to be expected that is, it's it's going to happen in a world that's drifted far away from God's original plan for it. Their suffering is to be expected when even the most religious people around crucified the Son of God. When the people who knew God's word the best so misunderstood what God was up to that they rejected and murdered God's Son. Mark says here, listen, if, if the world crucified Jesus, what makes you think you're going to get out unscathed? Mark wants his readers to know that suffering is not unexpected. It is the cost of following Christ. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, of dying to ourselves, dying to our own desires, dying to our own hopes and dreams for our lives, handing them over to God to say, like Jesus, not my will. But yours be done. The world wants a life with, you know, trending lines that point up and to the right. But Jesus calls his followers to lower themselves, even to death. The cross in the book of Mark is the paradigm of obedience for followers of Jesus. We pattern our own lives after the life of Christ. That's called living a cruciform life. A cross-shaped life. A way of life that is patterned after Jesus' self-giving, giving Jesus' suffering for others. Jesus wants his followers to know what is coming so that they can count the cost. Choosing to follow Jesus is beautiful and life-giving. And it is also costly. And Jesus wants to make sure his disciples count the cost. He wants his disciples to know that when it comes down to it, they will have to choose between life the way the world says and life the way of Jesus. They cannot have Jesus and. Cannot have Jesus and comfort. Jesus and control. Jesus and autonomy. The choice to follow Jesus is a choice to surrender our entire lives to him, to acknowledge that we belong completely to him. To follow Jesus is not just about the comforting feeling we get when we pray. To follow Jesus is not only about enjoying the benefits of the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. To follow Jesus is not only about the hope we have that he is with us in the darkness. To follow Jesus is also a decision to hand over everything. Everything I have, everything I am to him. To say that from now on, my life is not in my own hands. It's in his. He's not only my savior who rescued me from sin's power. He is my king. I'm his servant. So whatever he wants from me is what I'll do. I belong to him. And while I'm following him, I see what he does and then do that he comforts i will comfort if he prays i will pray if he surrenders i will surrender if he surrenders even to death then i will too that is what it means to be a follower of jesus that is the life of a disciple of jesus listen it's unlikely that most of us will literally die for our faith it's unlikely it's not impossible but it's not super likely it's more likely for us that costly discipleship will come in terms of our attempts to hold on to our own comfort at the expense of participating in God's kingdom. Following Jesus might cost us our sense of calm. Serving others the way Jesus did means making space in our lives for messy people. Following Jesus might cost us our comfort. Speaking out about injustice done to others is uncomfortable. Following Jesus might cost us our security because giving to others as much as we can means there's less left for our own safety net. Following Jesus might cost us our plans. To hold our lives with open hands to Jesus means we open ourselves up to Jesus taking us somewhere we never wanted to go. Following Jesus might cost us our sense of control. To be clear that everything you have and everyone you love are in God's hands. That's comforting and also terrifying. To say that come what may, you will follow him. That's comforting and terrifying. Following Jesus might cost us. This is sobering. And this is the reality that this season of Lent invites us to consider again. So why do we choose this? (laughs) Why would anyone voluntarily choose to give up control, give up comfort, give up peace, give up our plans, give up the claim we have on everything we love? Why? Because it's worth it. Just like labor pains were worth it. Blisters and training for a marathon were worth it. Jesus is worth it. God's kingdom is worth it. The restoration of all creation, the renewal of all humankind, it's worth it. Freedom from sin for everyone. Freedom from pain. Freedom from death. Life without end. Perfect bodies. Perfect relationships. A perfect world living in the literal, physical presence of God. It's worth it. When I start to wonder if it's worth it, all I have to do is look back at my own journey with Jesus to remember why I signed on to this journey. All I have to do is remember back to when I was young and my parents' marriage was falling apart and how Jesus was the only stable thing in my life. All I have to do is remember back to high school when I was looking for love anywhere and everywhere, and the only place I really found it was in God's love for me. All I have to do is remember when I was just out of college and so depressed that I didn't want to live anymore. I look back and remember the way God brought his church around me to love me, to heal my broken heart. All I have to do is look back at the journal where I kept a list of dozens of ways where God whispered his love to me when I wasn't sure if he really cared about me. When I look back and remember, then I remember why the life of discipleship is worth it. Whatever happens is worth the love of this God. Whatever comes is worth this God being known to everyone. Whatever happens is worth his kingdom breaking in. The call to discipleship is worth it. Paul says in Romans eight seventeen and 18, Now if we are his children, God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us the worst things that this life can throw at me are nothing compared to the glory coming for us in the new heavens and the new earth. And friends, it is only Jesus that is worth this kind of commitment. Only Jesus. In the book of John, after hearing some hard truth about the cost of following Jesus, many of Jesus' followers stopped following him. But when Jesus asked the 12 disciples, are you guys going to leave too? We read that Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Nothing else is worth surrendering everything for. Nothing else is worth enduring the worst of what the world throws at us. Nothing else is worth giving up our comfort, our security, our lives. Nothing else is worth betting everything on. Harbor, Mark is clear that to follow Jesus means the way of the cross. When you surrender your life to Jesus, you're signing up for suffering. And my job as your pastor is to get you ready for that. I want you to be ready to prepare you for the reality that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Because... I want you to be ready so that when it happens, you don't think God has abandoned you. When it happens, I want you to know that you're not doing something wrong. that You're not being punished. I want you to be ready for suffering so that when it happens, you know that you are walking with Jesus, the one who was crucified. I want you to be ready for suffering so that you will keep going with Jesus to the cross So that after you experience the cross, you get to experience the resurrection. Because Jesus did not only die. Jesus was raised back to life. But to celebrate Easter Sunday, we have to go through Good Friday. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you are here this morning looking for something looking for peace, looking for comfort, looking for assurance. I want you to know Jesus has the words of life. Jesus has what you're looking for. Maybe this morning you need to ask Jesus to come to your life and take control of it. Maybe you need to surrender yourself to him because you know that his kingdom is the only place you're going to find peace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling challenged about this cost of following Jesus. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus, but you've sort of been viewing your relationship with him like he's Santa Claus or a genie, (laughs) there to grant you wishes, but not really requiring anything of you. And maybe this morning, Jesus is inviting you into a more surrendered life, a life where you surrender your life to him completely. No holding back of your plans, your money, your relationships, your desires. Maybe this morning you need to tell him that you are letting go of it all. You're giving it all to him. You're surrendering your life completely to him and his kingdom, whatever comes. Or maybe, like me, you've been walking with Jesus for a while, and sometimes we forget what a priceless treasure we found in Jesus Maybe we've just sort of been taking for granted the privilege it is to be called a child of God. And maybe that kind of makes us slide sometimes toward chasing comfort more than chasing God. Or just not thinking too much about what it is God might be asking you to surrender to him. So this morning, maybe you can reflect, just like I had to do this week, on your own story how Jesus found you, how Jesus rescued you, healed you, comforted you, gave you a place to belong. And maybe today is the day you ask him to reset your priorities, keeping him at the center, being open about how he might be inviting you into the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life of sacrifice and service. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross. There is no escaping it. In these next few moments, you're going to have some time to consider what God might be saying to you today, what the Holy Spirit might be prompting about your discipleship journey with Jesus. So consider that. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And when you're ready, come up and receive communion as a symbol of your recommitment to walking in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, this season, um, season is sobering. This season where we reflect on this journey to the cross that you made. And so this morning, God, um, I pray that you will help us to be open to what you're saying. You're not a God who shames, calling us into greater surrender and greater discipleship. It's not about shame. You're not here to, you're not shaming anyone this morning. That's not your voice but you are inviting us into a freer life, the freer life that comes as we surrender more and more of who we are and what we have to you. We want to be a community that is a cruciform community, a cross-shaped community, a community where we serve, a community where we sacrifice, a community where we will give whatever it takes to help people find their way back to God because you are worth it. So, Jesus, in these next few moments, will you move in us? We know that the Holy Spirit is at work, speaking to each of us the challenge, the comfort, the encouragement that we each need. So will you help us just hear from you this morning and do whatever you're asking of us next? In Jesus' name, amen.